Thank you, Derek. Sarah, wonderful singing. And uh, never get tired of singing that song. Jesus paid it all. What a blessing. All right. We will go back to the book of Daniel tonight. Book of Daniel. And we will do a quick review from a couple of weeks ago. I know that Dr. Hartman was a blessing to us uh, last Sunday night and an encouragement. And uh, we just had a great time of fellowship with them afterward. And uh, that, that man is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And uh, he just seems to have an endless supply of energy as well. I, I can't, even, can't even keep up with him. And uh, he even gave uh, Sheila a new nickname that we were talking about afterwards. So <laughs> had a lot, of, a lot of fun with Sheila. And uh, you even came up in conversation, but it was all good. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, yes, it was, it was a good time. But we'll uh, do a quick review, um, and then we will get back into the book of Daniel in a little bit more in-depth in trying to lay a framework, lay, in a, in a sense, a skeleton or a framework for understanding God's prophetic timetable. And I think sometimes we get so confused by all of the different statements in scripture and all the different events and because they're found in different books of the bible we can get very confused about the timeline so i want to really talk about daniel's 70th week tonight and help us with some structure and some framework kind of a skeleton upon which uh, to to hang the meats uh, so to speak but let's go back for review and let's once again identify what is prophecy what is prophecy Prophecy is foretelling, a spiritual gift given to people, primarily preachers, though not always, that enabled them to accurately predict future events. This is what we often think of as prophecy, a spiritual gift given to people, enabling them to receive direct revelation from God. And this is in the sense of the giving of the scripture, the inspiration of the Bible, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In that sense, everyone who God used, who God breathed his word through as the holy word of God, yet still keeping the personality and the experiences of that person so that they wrote only those words that God inspired them to write, that God breathed, okay? They were exercising the gift of prophecy in that sense, they received direct revelation from God and they put it into written form. And by the inspiration of God and the preservation of God's word, we have the complete written revelation of God in front of us. We have the Bible. We're not missing anything. There's nothing that's been left out. There's nothing that these charismatic preachers are receiving as additional revelation that we need to add to the Bible. No. We have everything that we need. We have the faith once delivered to the saints. And God has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And we went back to Hebrews even, and we know that God has given unto us his son. And we have the written revelation and the, the, uh, the living revelation of Jesus Christ. And the written revelation is all about Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it was a temporary sign gift that ceased at the completion of the Bible. We went to 1 Corinthians 13, and we looked at that, that the 
gift of prophecy in this sense has ceased. It has failed. It has ended. So once again, we are not out there hoping for some vision or some dream. I am not, like I said a couple weeks ago, I am not at night tossing and turning on my bed hoping that God will deliver to me a sermon for the next Sunday because I don't have anything to say except some hopeful revelation that I get from God in some dream or vision. That, that's, that's baloney. I have the word of God and God impresses upon my heart from his word and through his word and the work of the Holy Spirit what I believe with the Lord's help our church needs as called of God to this ministry and gifted with the forth-telling gift of prophecy, but I am not receiving new revelation during the week through some vision or sign or wonder, and then I burp that back out on Sundays uh, because I got it from God sometime during the week through some miraculous supernatural revelation. No, uh, the sign gift of the gift of prophecy, the, the ability to foretell, the ability to receive new divine revelation, that gift has ceased. We have the completion, we have the completed canon of Scripture. The gift will be temporarily reinstated to two men during the tribulation, Revelation 11. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And there is a, a temporary reinstatement in the sense that those two men are given special gifts and power from God during the tribulation for a certain number of days. And so there seems to be some reinstatement of the gift of prophecy. The church is gone. The church is in heaven. The church is experiencing the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're not here. God uses 144,000 evangelists, and God uses these two men. Some people say they're Enoch and Elijah because they didn't die. They were taken up into heaven. We don't know for sure, but these two men are given special protection from God. They are given special power, and they are able to exercise those gifts and abilities, and no one can kill them as long as they are in that time frame that God gave them those special protections. And then finally, God removes that protection. They are slain in the streets, and then we'll eventually talk about uh, their role as we go through this series. But that seems to be a place where the gift of prophecy in the sense of foretelling and the empowerment and receiving revelation, there seems to be a reinstatement of that for a short period of time during the tribulation when there is not the active church in the sense that we know it right now, the local church functioning in that time in the future. So the aspect of the gift of prophecy that is functioning is the foretelling. And I say, I say it this way, I have to qualify this because there's not, again, this predictive ability, there's not this receiving of new revelation, there's not these signs and visions and wonders, but I believe that the gift of prophecy is functioning in the foretelling, in the preaching and teaching ministry that God has gifted men with to the church. So I say as an example of myself, I have the gift of prophecy because there are giftedness, there's a giftedness in my calling apt to teach that's not here, you know, to pat myself on the back or to lift myself up. That's not what I'm trying to say. It's I have recognized that gift. 
Other people have recognized that gift. There's people who speak much better than me. There are pastors that are far better than me. There are eloquent speakers. I am not a gifted speaker, but I do have the gift of prophecy in that I have been called of God to declare his truth to to the church. Now, that gift of prophecy also comes with things like a very clear desire to see things in black and white, right and wrong. And there's a gift of the, there's, a, there's an aspect of the gift of prophecy where I am very opinionated. And I have had to learn through the years. There are times where my opinion isn't needed, nor is it wanted, nor do I need to say it quite that way. I've had to uh, learn that. There are times where I have had to speak up in the role that God has given me, in the leadership, in the responsibility God has given me, where I have to say certain things. And sternness isn't meanness. Just because a, a person in leadership has a stern statement or has a strong opinion doesn't mean that they are bad and evil or that they are even rude or inconsiderate. Uh, how many times have we as parents or as grandparents have had to put on the evil eye and had to give them the look and have had to be very strong with what we have said or what we are trying to say? And we mean business. And again, without getting too carried away, kids will say, they yelled at me. And I have to ask them, maybe my own kids will say that. Define yell. Well, they disagreed with me. They corrected me. They said something that I didn't like. Okay, that doesn't mean they were mean to you. I've had parents call me and say the teacher was mean. My child came home and said the teacher yelled at him. Okay, define yell. Okay, the teacher corrected them because they were behaving badly in the classroom. That doesn't mean that they were mean to them. It just meant that they had to make a statement. And the gift of prophecy comes with a measure of this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it, and let's go do it. Thus saith the Lord. That kind of aspect to the gift of prophecy is functioning in particularly the, the, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, uh, the apostle is gone. I don't care what billboard you see of the apostle, reverend, so-and-so, the apostle is gone. That gift to the church has died with the Apostle John around A.D. 95, A.D. 100. So that's, again, some review. I went through that very quickly. The purpose of prophecy as a testimony of God's sovereign control. It gives believers confidence to live by faith. It gives believers hope for the future. Prophecy is not meant to be a divisive thing in the church. It's not meant to be a prophetic two-by-four that we hit each other upside the head with. The the prophetic passages in Scripture are meant to show that God is in control. I gave the illustration a couple weeks ago about God being the greatest director of all time. If I can use without being disrespectful or sacrilegious in any way, There's been plays, there's been programs that we've all probably been a part of or we've attended. And there's a director of an orchestra or of a play. And that director is overseeing the whole aspect of the performance. And I remember going to an opera in college and then going to the opera last spring when Emily was in it. And Dr. Lawson was the director, and he was overseeing the entire opera and every element of it. Though he wasn't the orchestra leader, he was in charge, though, of making sure the orchestra knew where they were supposed to start and stop playing and all that. 
And Dr. Lawson was the director. God is the director of the entire universe from creation to consummation. And he will work out his redemption plan. No matter what man tries to do to oppose it, to disrupt it, to interrupt it, God will work out his redemption plan. That gives us confidence. That gives us hope. There's a lot of things I know going on in between and a lot of things going on that we, we even can't completely fully comprehend between the sovereignty of God and the free will, the personal responsibility of man. There are mysteries there that we will not understand until we get to heaven. And maybe even then, he is still God and we are not him, all right? There are things that we're not going to fully understand in God's sovereign uh, plan of redemption, but we know he's going to work out his redemption plan. And we've seen that already in the first coming of Christ, can we not have hope and promise that if he fulfilled the first coming, the payment for our sin, paid the penalty for our sin and rose again, if he did, if he accomplished that, does that not give us hope and promise for the full fulfillment of his eternal redemption plan? That gives us great confidence and great hope. Prophecy calls sinners to repentance because part of prophecy is judgment. It was brought up in Sunday school this morning, a great point that hell is real. People don't think it's real. People think hell is a party where you go and you have beer with your best friends at the, 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 the bar of brimstone and fire. I'm sorry, there's no party going on in hell. It's a place of torment. There is no beer in hell. It's a place of tears. It's a place of regret. It's a place of shame. The rich man called out send to, to, to Abraham, send someone to my brother so they don't come here. Uh, to the rich man, I mean. Uh, send someone to my brother so they don't come, to my family, so they don't come to this place. This is an awful place. And for all eternity, those who have rejected Christ as their Savior will spend eternity in hell. That means there is a call to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to perish but that all should come to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leadeth man to repentance. And so prophecy calls sinners to repentance. It calls believers to holiness. If there's a judgment coming for the unsaved, there is also an accounting, the judgment seat of Christ, an accounting coming for us as believers, that the way we live now does matter for eternity. Are we laying up treasures in heaven, or is it just the um, wood, hay, and stubble? that 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about. So principles for interpreting prophecy. Symbolic language. We're going to spend a little bit of time again tonight dealing with hermeneutics, the science of interpreting the Bible, okay? Proper interpretation of Scripture. I tell you, there are so many people out there who do not know proper hermeneutics. They are guilty of what I call, or actually I borrowed this phrase from a professor of mine in seminary, exegetical gymnastics. They twist themselves all up in a pretzel trying to read into Scripture and to take out of Scripture things that aren't there or put things in Scripture that aren't there. And many times it's because man wants to impose upon Scripture his idea of how life should be. Instead of looking at Scripture and seeing that Scripture defines the reality of life, and that we need to know God's word to know how to function in this reality of life that God has given us and that we're to be stewards of. Instead, we have people who come, come to prophecy, especially with all the symbolism, 
and they want to make up all of these grandiose ideas about what the meaning of that symbolic language is. And some of them just go completely into orbit, trying to come up with some explanation for a symbolic or a figurative term in Scripture. It has been said that if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So take the Scripture literally, at the same time understanding that there is metaphorical language. There are allegories, but we read Scripture literally. We can talk about the angel in Revelation 3, the messenger, that's probably the pastor, and the beasts of Revelation 4. Each of those beasts represent a certain aspect of the Antichrist and what's going on in the world during the days of the tribulation. Each of those beasts represents a certain aspect of what is going on as God deals with mankind. So each of those beasts has a certain characteristic that is characteristic of that judgment or the way God is dealing with man during the time of the tribulation. It doesn't mean that there is a literal lion or a literal beast or a literal horse that necessarily rides into the planet and runs all around. Okay, There's a symbolic language. And again, we have to remember that the Apostle John is using the Koine Greek language that he knew. He did not have terms like nuclear or atomic or tanks or F-16 jets or whatever Earl called the intercontinental ballistic rocket missile, however you describe that today. He, he, John didn't have those terms. John didn't have all of that terminology. He used the terminology in the language of his day to describe things that God was revealing to him by the inspiration of God, but within the limits of the language of that day. I hope that makes sense. So some of the things that are symbolic, like the scorpions in the book of Revelation, those could be some sort of chemical or biological warfare. Those could be some sort of armament. And that's the language that John used to describe because that's what he had. That's what he understood. That's what he knew. And obviously, that's what God inspired using the language that he had of that day. Prophetic passages are usually written with a sense of imminence. That means something is going to happen. It's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen soon. And so sometimes as we're reading through, the, 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 the writer, by the inspiration of God, is writing with an urgency and a sense that this could happen like tomorrow or today. And we got to remember that. And so they were expecting Christ to come. They were expecting the return of Christ. And yet there's been now 2,000 years since those, some of those prophecies were, were given, uh, at least 2,000 years. And so there's an imminence at the same time there is a timetable that God has set up, and we can see certain technological advancements that seem to make sense of how the Antichrist will have the mark of the beast. We can see certain things about the temple in Jerusalem, or we can see certain ways in which governments are organizing, or disorganizing, or controlling, or 
the way the global economy is so interconnected, in the way the markets operate in conjunction with each other, those kinds of things, those make sense to us that help us to see that, yeah, it could happen maybe more so now than it did 15, 20 years ago just because of the technology. But we've got to be careful that we don't get carried away with that and start reading those things into passages of Scripture that aren't there. So prophetic passages often combine more than one prediction in a single passage with no indication of the amount of time between events. Okay, So this is where we can look at things like uh, Joel chapter 2 and the partial fulfillment in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. We can look at Luke 4 where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and he stops because the rest of that prophecy is fulfilled later in the future. Daniel 11, there's a near fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes, the Persian general who brought an abomination of desolation and desecrated the temple during the intertestamental period. Do we understand that the Jewish holiday in right around Christmas, um, please forgive me, I just drew a blank. Hanukkah, thank you. That is a intertestamental, that is a, a, um, a holiday that is celebrating the deliverance of Israel from the Persian rule and the desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes and the celebration of Hanukkah and the eight days in which the candelabra continued to burn, in which they have the, the lighting ceremonies and all that goes with Hanukkah, has to do with the Persian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, and his desecration of the temple and the disruption of the Jewish way of life and Judas Maccabeus delivering Israel from that, uh, that Persian rule. And so the near fulfillment in Daniel 11 is a type, Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of, anti, of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Antiochus Epiphanes does very similar things during the intertestamental period that the Antichrist does during the tribulation. There's a near and a far fulfillment. We have to keep those things in mind. And then we interpret scripture by scripture. We have to go to Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. We have to go to Daniel. We have to go to Revelation. We have to go to Isaiah 38 and 39. We have to go to several different passages, and we can't just hold one passage in an isolated island out by itself without other passages of Scripture that speak to those same events. Matthew 24 and 25, you read through Matthew 24 and 25, and a lot of what we read in Matthew 24 and 25 sounds a lot like the judgments in the book of Revelation. The seal judgments and the bowl judgments and the vile judgments. A lot of similarities. So people try to put Matthew 24 and 25 as pre-tribulational, as going on right now, when Matthew 24 and 25 are actually speaking of events in the tribulation that are looking to the second coming of Christ as the great tribulation unfolds and as that seven-year period comes to an end. And then... Context. 
I tell you, we are so bad sometimes at ripping things out of context. People get in so much trouble, and we can do it so well today with social media. I mean, social media and all the craft and art frames, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to put scripture up in your house. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that. Okay, If you want to put a scripture pillow on your couch and sit on it, that's fine. It's okay, All right, or hang it on the wall. But we are very good at cherry-picking verses and taking things out of context. And social media does does this, because uh, we can post all kinds of scripture, and oftentimes there's no, there's no context. Again, not saying that it's wrong, but we have to, in interpreting prophecy, we have to remember grammatical, that's the linguistic, that's the language, understanding, like, I'll, uh, uh, I don't know Hebrew, I don't know Greek. I took two years of Greek, and I praise the Lord, I passed both years. And I never got an A, but I also didn't get a C. So I got somewhere in between, all right? <laughs> but I, I, I learned just enough about Greek to be able to help myself with the different helps that are out there. Uh, there were people who basically aced Greek, and uh, I had a professor who would sit there in chapel, and he would have his Greek New Testament, and he would just follow along with the preacher in his Greek New Testament. He was, he was, he was a brain. Um, he could do that. And I, I never had that ability. I go to and I make reference to the Hebrew and the Greek words because it's important for us to understand the Bible was not given to us. Please don't take this wrong, but the Bible was not given to us in 1611 English. Okay, we have a translation called the King James and there's other translations, but the Bible was given in Aramaic, in Hebrew and in Greek. Okay, so that means that all of the versions that we have, all of the Bibles that we have, are translations. Okay, and those were carefully, in some cases not so carefully, translated from copies because the original autographs are gone. But God has faithfully preserved His Word so that we have no question, no doubt that we have the Bible in front of us today. Okay. Now, I just opened up another rabbit trail or a can of worms, and I don't mean to, to, to do that, but there is uh, an understanding of the grammatical context that helps us in understanding prophecy, and then the historical context. It is so important that we get the historical timeline correct, that we get the framework correct, okay? So, I know we have a brief business meeting, but I want to get through this if we can in the time that we have left. Daniel's 70 weeks, okay? I've spent a lot of time with the review and a little additional information. But in, in the book of Daniel, in chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, which was our scripture reading last week, Daniel 9 and verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. That is specifically a reference to Israel. It doesn't mean that the church age isn't in there, and we'll identify that, but this is specifically a prophecy to Israel, and we get to be a part of it. We get to be involved. Okay? We're not left out, though it's specifically in relation to Israel. Okay? So 70 weeks. A week is seven days, so a prophetic week is seven years. So 70 weeks, and I, and I apologize, I'm not good with doing math in my head. I got A's and B's in math, 
I've taught math, but I'm not very good at doing it in my head. I have to write it down, and I have to have a calculator many times. So thank you for those who fixed my math error this morning and uh, did not do my math right. And uh, thank you. I had someone come up to me with their notebook, and they had it all figured out for me. <laughs> and that's fine. That's all right. I deserve it. I deserve it. But 70 weeks times 7 gives us how many years? 490. 490. Okay. So we are having to look at a 490-year time span. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Okay. The beginning. The beginning of this 70 weeks is the decree from Artaxerxes of Persia to rebuild Jerusalem 445 BC. Okay. So Daniel 9 verse 24 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, and to divide the church and cause us to know. Okay, there's six things listed, six or seven things listed there, but we get into controversy, and everybody thinks they can sell a book that's full of sensational things about what's going to happen in the end times, and they don't even hardly take time to look at the scripture and interpret it properly. They can sell books, and there are a lot of people out there who read books, and they're extremely confused, and they think all these sensational things are going to happen, and they have no context. They hardly even interpret the Bible in the book. They just write a whole bunch of things, and then you have all the fiction, and then you have all the interpretation of what might happen, the poetic or whatever interpretation you want to add in there. Again, you, it's not that you can't watch Timothy LaHaye's Left Behind series. It's not that you can't read the Left Behind series, but don't get your theology from the Left Behind series. Don't get your eschatology from the Left Behind series. Okay, enough said there. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem <clears throat> unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks, the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. So that's the beginning, the decree from Artaxerxes, to rebuild Jerusalem, 445 B.C., that's in Nehemiah 2, to the completion of the streets and the walls of Jerusalem, that's 396 B.C. That marked the end of that first seven weeks. Seven times seven, 49, okay? That's the 49 years. Letter D in our outline. I know I'm giving us a lot of information here. The next 62 weeks, 430, 434 years, span the period of time between the Old and the New Testaments and the life of Christ up to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I just can't help but think about next Sunday morning's message. We're going to be looking at the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, beginning at verse number 12. Uh, I, lo I love the timing of all that. The Messiah cut off refers to Christ, Christ's death on the cross. Daniel 9 and verse 26. Now, Daniel, the book of Daniel, has been one of the main books attacked by the liberals and the German rationalists and the theological liberals. They hate the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel has all this prophecy, all this foretelling, and it is 100% accurate in its every detail. Hundreds of years 
before many of these events took place. And the Dead Sea Scrolls had scripture, copies of scripture, of the book of Daniel, that the liberals and the New Orthodox and all those rationalists, when those Dead Sea Scrolls were found and they had scripture of the book of Daniel, they couldn't believe those existed. Because in their mind, Daniel had to have been written hundreds of years later after these events took place. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and they had copies of the book of Daniel, that we knew and the church knew and the Israelites knew, the Jews knew that these were prophetic statements written by the inspiration of God, by the prophet Daniel, God-breathed, 100% accurate, and the liberals didn't know what to do because archaeology had once again verified that the Bible is true. It already verified what God had already said is true. So just amazing, the book of Daniel and the prophecy. So that's the 62 weeks, and then we see the 70th week is still future. So we've had 69 fulfilled, the 70th week is still future. The seven-year tribulation. That's the last prophetic week that is to come. It was not revealed to Daniel that there would be a gap of time that we call the church age between the 69th and 70th weeks. That was something that Daniel was not necessarily, it was not necessarily revealed. The mystery of the church that we read in Ephesians. An aspect of the mystery of the church is that some of the prophets did not understand the dispensation of the church age. And I'm a dispensationalist. I'm not a covenant theologian. Okay, I'm a dispensationalist. And I don't say that with any, any shame. But this is one of the reasons we believe in dispensations. Because the mystery of the church is a dispensation that in some cases was not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. They did not understand it. Even the disciples struggled with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and the complete understanding of that. Though they knew him as the Messiah, though they trusted him by faith, though he was their Savior, except for Judas, of course, even they struggled with the kingdom and the fulfillment of it, and when, and the timing of it. Because they had uh, understood the Old Testament prophets who did not completely understand, or was not completely revealed to them, the mystery of the church, the church age. I hope that makes, I hope that makes sense. We'll go through this really, really quickly here. Oops, went too far. Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. We don't have time to read it. We'll come back and review, probably, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday night. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Here again, we see God revealing, even to a pagan, I believe in, Nebuch I believe in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. I, I believe that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. We, we can argue that all day long. But it seems in, in chapter 4 of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar truly comes to a, a saving knowledge of, of God uh, after he was turned into a, a beast of the field for seven years. But Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel interprets it, and they had a gold head, silver chest and shoulders, brass waist and abdominal area, legs, feet and toes, and then finally a stone cut without hands. And we read Daniel 2, 44 and 45, that speaks of that stone. We see the representation of each of those empires by the different parts of that, that uh, statue, that, that idol, or not idol, but that, that, in that vision, that, that statue. The gold head represents the Babylonian Empire, silver chest and shoulders, the Medo-Persian Empire, brass waist and abdominal area, the Greek Empire, legs, the Roman feet and toes, the revived Roman Empire, 
which is the future empire led by the Antichrist. And then the stone cut without hands is the empire of God, God's kingdom. That comes down and destroys all of man's kingdoms. And he has an eternal kingdom. And then we see Daniel's vision in, in Daniel 7. We see the lion, the bear, the leopard, the beast, the ten horns, and the ancient of days. All which represent aspects of those empires. The Babylonian Empire was lion-like. The Medo-Persian Empire was bear-like. The Greek Empire was leopard-like. The Roman Empire was beast-like. The Ten Horns is the revived Roman Empire, that ten-nation confederacy out of which the Antichrist, there will be three, and then there will be the one horn in Revelation. And then the Ancient of Days, of course, is Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom. So here is an artist's rendition of that dream, that image in Daniel 2. The Babylonian Empire, we know the historical dates for each of these empires. The Greek Empire essentially came to an end at the Battle of Carthage, 146 B.C., the Roman Republic, and then the Roman Empire, 27 B.C. to 476. I think that's supposed to be A.D., sorry, it says B.C. But that's the timeline. These are the empires. This is the historical context for these prophetic passages. And then Daniel's 70 weeks, you can see there, the first 49 years from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to the decree to rebuild the walls completed. The 62 weeks is that span of time until the triumphal entry and the death of the Messiah, the Messiah cut off. The church age, which was unknown to Daniel, was a mystery to him. The destruction of Jerusalem was 70 A.D. The covenant between Israel and the Antichrist, and that takes us into the tribulation. The Antichrist breaks the covenant with Israel, the abomination of desolation. And then after the tribulation, that seven years, that 70th week of Daniel is the second coming of Christ. So I hope that chart helps us out. And then I believe I have one more, which we will refer to from time to time, that breaks down the different passages in the different empires from the book of Daniel. So that's a lot of information in a short amount of time. We'll come back, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, and we'll probably do some review of this and then continue uh, with... Uh, these uh, prophetic passages and in, in, in helping us understand uh, God's redemption plan and uh, help us understand the, the, the context uh, of all of these prophetic passages and the timeline and the structure of it. And hopefully, with the Lord's help, we can interpret these properly and uh, apply them in our lives and not be caught up in all the sensationalism and all of the stuff that's out there on the Internet and let's stick to what God's Word says and not get caught up in all of the other stuff that's going on, that's being written, that's being said, and that's being blasted, it seems like, from the airwaves and across the Internet. Let's stick to what the Bible says and interpret Scripture properly. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the hope that the Word of God brings. Thank you for the confidence that we have that, Lord, you are going to work out your redemption plan in its entirety, 100% fulfilled, and that, Lord, we have the privilege that we don't deserve to be a part of your plan. To be, Lord, used of you when we don't deserve it. To be a, a crooked stick that you can use to draw a straight line. Lord, may we be humble servants. Lord, may we do everything that you have called us to do and to, Lord, be willing and be available and to be humble and be teachable and to be obedient to all that you've given us to do. 
And Lord, help us to trust you with the election coming, with all the stuff that is said in the news, on the internet. Help us, Lord, to keep our eyes upon you and, Lord, stay faithful to the word of God. And may our rock, our confidence be in Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek is going to come and lead us in a stanza of 390, Jesus'